Hello and welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always is Toby. Hi Toby. Hi Simon. In this episode, we will be looking at the 1976 classic film Network. Written by Paddy Chayevsky and directed by Sidney Lumet, the film won four Academy Awards, including Chayevsky for Best Original Screenplay, and has since been recognised as one of the greatest American films of the 1970s, alongside other classics such as The Godfather and Taxi Driver. It has also been heralded as one of the greatest satirical films of all time. The story centres on the fictional television network UBS, and in particular the lives of those involved in the news department. Howard Beale, played by Peter Finch, is a washed up news anchor who declares on air that he will kill himself next week live on the show. From here, Howard Beale becomes a latter day prophet for those watching at home, and who are mad as hell and aren't going to take it anymore. Alongside Peter Finch as Howard Beale, are Faye Dunaway as Hotshot TV producer Diana Christensen, William Holden as veteran news chief Max Schumacher, and Robert Duvall as the corporate tough guy Frank Hackett. Toby, I have watched Network twice over the past month in the run-up to this episode, and I could probably keep watching twice a month for the next year. I just love the film. I know you do too. Can you tell us about your thoughts on the film, and also if your impression of the film has changed with multiple viewings of it? Yeah, I don't know if I, my thoughts on the film have necessarily changed. I think, given that um, the episodes that we've done have dealt with the liberal consensus and the new left, the network sort of thrusts us right into the middle of the 1970s and the, the decade of gloom, as many people have portrayed it as. And for me, the network is a hilarious social satire about the time, the sort of the malaise of the time, the feeling of despondency. And also it, it critiques television in a, in a way that sort of people at the time weren't used to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose for me, my my thoughts on the film have changed in as much as what I remembered about the film seems kind of different to the reality of it. Mm-hmm. I, I remembered the film... You you remember the Peter Finch, Howard Beale stuff, obviously, because that's kind of what dominates the legacy of the film. You know, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore, you know, all this, all this kind of thing. But actually, I think the centre of the film... I mean, you could see Howard Beale as the centre of the film, but the two main characters are probably Danny Christensen and uh, Max and their relationship and how that kind of builds and dissolves as the the film goes on and I think it was a the film was funnier than I remember it being and it was also more about their relationship than I remember it being as well yeah yeah certainly that is true on sort of re-watching the film I think because you start to look at it with a sort of a critical eye beyond you know how hilarious it is or how uh, seemingly prophetic it might be that relationship starts to come to the full and 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 i think that's sort of it adds a sort of second critique of television and the way television had changed from the you know the era of uh the 1950s and walter cronkite the era of the authoritative news anchor who simply because of his you know majesty and and how um sort of like you or how how like middle america he seemed gave gave you a sense of almost impeachability about what he was saying absolutely and i think you can you can very much see the you could almost see howard beale in the middle of the war between the 1950s classic newsman um, yeah, he's, he's sort of losing his mind yeah. right in front of our eyes. And, and, and he's pilled <laughs> The nation is, is also <laughs> becoming unstuck in, 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 a, in a way. Absolutely. And you, you have Max on one side, which, you know, he talks about this kind of nobility of 1950s media. And then on, then on the other side, you have Diana, who's, you know, this 
shock and awe nineteen seventies. Right, we got to make people sit up and listen. You know, people got to pay attention to this news. And Howard Beale's in the middle of it, kind of having a personal and uh, career crisis. And it's, it's. I suppose it's, the relationship between Diana and Max is there to um, tell that story of the the morphine of the news anchorman and news in general. From you know, it's Walter Cronkite. You know, kind of giving you the facts to. Here, here's the mousy tongue hour where people are robbing banks and filming it, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think what is particularly great about this film is that, I mean, to, to sort of pick it as a work of fiction, it really gives you a sense, just allegorically, of what the mid nineteen seventies were like and what people who were thinking politically were thinking about at the time you know it's very conspiratorial Howard Beale takes up this sort of mantle as a sort of almost crazed um, sort of prophet while sort of being um, I think unsure about all of Americans institutions you know absolutely also it and people like people have said that the network almost seems to predict many of the things that have happened in television and maybe even in broader society since then. I think the, the power of the film comes from, in part, the fact that I think Chayefsky had worked in television and understood the medium, probably better than the people who, who you know, worked in it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think you're absolutely right that when... Chayefsky was, you know, looking at this and telling a story. He was obviously telling the story of what he had seen and, you know, whether it was a kind of bastardization of, of the news as he saw it. You're right in that what has become since is this uh, prophetic uh, um, uh, story, which has, you know, you know, it's very easy to look at it and go, right, well, Howard Beale then became Jerry Springer or, you know, whatever else it kind of became this, you know, 80s and 90s television where kind of more and more extreme things were happening. But on the other side, you could look at it as what the internet has sort of become, you know, whether or not you have something like Infowars and, you know, and uh, that side of things, or whether or not you have uh, what they talk about the film is, in the film they talk about the, the tube and how it's this great all-powerful thing and I suppose that was the kind of equivalent to what the internet is today with this idea of um, this great powerful source which can you know touch everybody's lives and which has control over everyone's lives and who is kind of controlling that and who is the the power behind behind the technology and it's very prophetic when you look at it in 2018 and I'm sure it will still be in 20 years time. Yeah and I think particularly if you sort of map this film in, in, in film history next to a lot of the films that came out in uh, 1976, like All the President's Men and Taxi Driver, those films don't really offer you answers. You know, there's a lot of calling people and, and sort of uh, dead ends, or there's just a sort of <laughs> sort of lonely man twisting into delirium. But this film actually, what's fantastic about this movie, especially in a period where... I think it, it acknowledges itself that there weren't many answers in, in public and social life. It, it seems to offer, you know, you're the one who can free yourself from the tube and also, you know, the, the socioeconomic realities that bind you. Yeah, it's ab- an incredibly powerful, powerful movie in that way. Ab- absolutely, and they, they do talk about Howard in particular calling about calling on the power of the individual to stand up for society and stand up for themselves and not to take things lying down and to, you know, whether or not they're writing uh, writing letters to the, the White House or whether or not they're standing up and shouting out of a window or yeah. whatever the action may be, it's kind of on in on the individual to, to rise up against this, uh, this malaise, which is... Yeah, because of- there wasn't... I mean, you didn't get that. I mean, there's a sense of futility in the fact that that sort of like Howard is this ridiculous character. But <laughs> like you say, uh, they they called the president, and that whatever sort of um, uh, monopoly, uh, the merger, the merger, yeah, yeah, whatever the merger was happening between CCA and the Arab company ended. 
Yep, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so so you, you had the power to get past the sort of um, sort of atomized world that television created for you and blocked you off from you know the realities of political life. Actually, what Howard Beale was able to get at was that actually you can have an impact on, on reality. You don't have to be stuck, you know, uh, and, and stuck uh, within the tube. Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely and i think um i think it's very easy to be cynical about you know howard beale was you know quote-unquote crazy but I, I suppose to some extent that there is an element of truth of his message about taking on th- that world around you you know in, in an era of depression which we'll kind of touch on a little bit you know, it's maybe very easy to kind of insulate yourself and maybe not want to, to do that. But, you know, Howard Beale talked about how, you know, people aren't reading books anymore. They're not engaging with life anymore. They're just kind of mm. sitting back and watching their television and letting things unfold. And, yeah, it's 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 maybe an easy target to kind of hit, but it is true. You know, there there is always going to, especially now that, you know, we have television, now we have the internet, it's very easy to kind of well i can just put netflix on and just hide myself away from from the world around me you know yeah and like we talked about in our sort of podcast about the podcast there are sort of many ways to get sort of vi- visceral kicks that seem to you know allow you to escape from from life but how would Beale seem to shout out from the darkness and sort of wake you up to the realities but in a, in a way that that wasn't necessarily credible because he was crazy absolutely and you know the, which is tragic the, <laughs> the, the the film itself seems to be split into a, a fairly common sort of three act structure in the sense that the film starts with a conversation between Howard Beale and uh, Max about Howard uh, being let go and then in the 40th minute you have the the move to uh, to the second uh, second section of the film where we have Dan and Max are now going out for dinner and having their first social encounter and then uh, the next scene is Howard Beale in bed being uh, visited by the mysterious voice that only he can hear and uh, that then on, then on the third act we move on in the 80th minute and we have uh, we have uh, Max telling his wife about Diana and uh, then we cut to one of our favourite scenes straight afterwards which is the Mousey tongue our contract negotiations mm-hmm. uh, which is just fantastic and it ties together both this idea that the, the relationships between the the characters are center to the film and you know it's interesting that the structure of the film seems to play around those big conversations between uh max and you know a character and then you know clearly the the television and media side of it which is obviously so runs throughout of course the film but what else runs throughout the film is one as you've already touched on the idea that uh they are in this depression you know the oil crisis is brought up quite a lot and you know the the depression that they're in the sort of 73 to 75 era uh depression and also the thing i kind of forgot about until i I rewatched it was how big corporations are such an important part of the film i think um yeah i think watching it re-watching it i think that was one of the things that's that i kind of forgot was this idea that it was big corporations that were at the center of everything and indeed the storyline itself revolves very much around big corporations and this idea and i think the storyline or the story seems to make great use of the director Sidney Lumant's ability to film different kinds of scenes and with different kinds of genres. Absolutely, yeah. And the, the themes of you know reality and television, obviously shrewd throughout this movie, and you know projected through Max and Diana, also come across in the way some of the scenes are shot in a different way to some of the other scenes. Like scenes with Howard Beale is shot in a sort, in a sort of way, you know, almost like, uh, almost to depict paranoia. But all of Absolutely. the boardroom scenes, all of the corporate yeah. scenes, Absolutely. are shot in almost like this realist cinema 
varied style where you know long monologues long points of dialogue about very i think wonky corporate shared discussions you know that yeah absolutely absolutely so i mean in in a and i think this is a really important point in an era of conspiracy theory films it's sort of they were very good at demonstrating that americans had lost faith in institutions this film you know against the grain said that actually there are things worth thinking about and there is a reality beyond this and there are solutions that's what's particularly powerful about this film yeah i think that there's so much you can you can look at it i mean the the idea of, as you're saying there being kind of possible solutions i mean it is it is very negative in the sense that it portrays a certain type of person uh, a frank hackett character for instance who is very driven in, in his ideas of you know finance and uh putting putting to one side the romantic image of a news a news uh, side of the business being able to lose money because they bring prestige in whereas you know frank and uh, cca are saying well you know everyone's got to make money and ev- everything's got to look for ratings so i suppose in that sense it could be cynical but i suppose it it is maybe more optimistic perhaps in the sense that i suppose you know howard to some extent is fighting for something that he believes in but then also at the same time it's tinged by the fact that we know through the course of the film that it's almost uh it's almost a submission to power rather than maybe a true enlightenment so at the start of the you know the kind of move to the second act we see him having this uh voice uh speak to him and that's when he becomes the prophet and then later on there's the terrific scene uh where he's been shouted at in, in the boardroom and he becomes on kind of one minute he's right we have to stop this deal from happening and then the next day he's the mouthpiece of the corporation which is uh saying actually no we've kind of done quite a lot let's kind of rein it back in and let's do certain things which align more into the interests of our corporate overloads so in that sense i suppose it is also quite quite cynical yeah it is quite cynical and i think the (laughs) The figure of um, Arthur Jensen, the, the head of UBS network, is emblematic of that because what he does is that he will be in, you know, he's in one scene with, with Hackett and he just says, oh, very good Hackett, when Hackett is talking about yeah. um, the pro- profits that they've gained. You know, he's doing almost like an interesting cost-benefit be- analysis. Absolutely. But then in the scene where he has to convince um, Howard Beale that, you know, of a different kind of, you know, almost corporate cosmology. He adopts Howard Beale's style, you know. Yep. He he goes behind a sort of dimmed light yes. and, you know, and sort of projects like, a, you know, like a classical actor would in a way that gives Howard almost the sense that, that the voices that he had been hearing before you know, had taken on almost human form. So you could see, he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and I think the line when he says, oh, uh, when Howard goes, uh, why me? Why, why am I the messenger for this? And, 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 and Jensen goes, because you're on television, dummy. So it's like, <laughs> Jensen is incredibly cynical. He knows that, you know, if he simply uh, evoked the, the hard-nosed world of, you know, corporate responsibility or, or the capitalist interests of UBS and their, their Arab uh, partners, no one would be interested in this. But he knows in order to try, he, he has to attempt to use the, the almost like the techniques of television to send out his own message to the world through the, through the almost uh, instrument of Howard Beale. So it shows you, and then again, you have that constant theme of reality and um, fiction through, through I think, the bridge between Howard Beale and Arthur Jensen in that, in that moment. Absolutely. And so, 
uh, Arthur Jensen is, um, as Toby said, he's kind of ruling the roost as far as the corporation side of it is concerned. And uh, by the time Howard Beale gets on air and becomes uh, this this mad prophet, one of the things he begins to rail against uh, is, is actually the merger, which is uh, the company that owns uh, the UBS network, uh, which he's on, uh, which is CCA, and the uh, the Arab money, which is tied in with that, and uh, Howard Beale going off on one and uh, basically stopping that deal from happening makes uh, Arthur Jensen rather upset, and uh, that leads to the fantastic scene, which is I think one of our one of our favorites, um, where Arthur Jensen is is powerfully kind of getting uh, getting Howard Beale to to submit to him, and mm. uh, it, it's very interesting how Sidney Lumet, who you know we often think about you know his classic films but we think probably more about him as a storyteller rather than necessarily as a kind of you know alter of the the visual style of like say you know a tarantino where you automatically bring a, a sense of visual style with it he is able to Sidney Lumet is able to mold himself i think a, a little bit more around the story rather than the visuals but it is interesting that one scene he has some very tight close-ups on Howard Beale and his very frightened face and draws back further for when Arthur Jensen is giving his uh, big lectures and lights it in a very particular way, which is quite haunting. I think that's perhaps the most visually interesting film of, uh, scene of the film, I think. Yes, certainly. And, and I was just to, um, to pick out this the merger that was happening, I think it, it goes to a sort of why this sort of socio-political movement that was happening in the in the mid 70s i mean this was the the era of despondency i mean pr- productivity in, in american um industry had gone down the um the opec oil crisis had affected the yep. nixon administration nixon had you know started to say yeah, in the in the Lyndon Johnson administration, they talked about how you know the times we lived in were the you know the best since uh, Christ was in Bethlehem, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> and then even in with the difficulties that happened towards the the late 1960s with the with the rights revolution and, and the deaths of people like. Um, RFK and Martin Luther King. It was the go-go 60s. You know, the economy was the const- constant thing in American society that was always flourishing. But in the mid 70s, that started to tank. And you know, that the there was. I mean, it's 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 really there's so many issues that that had um, accrued on American society in that that point. And Absolutely. things like. Um, Things like how what does one control inflation? You know, that mm. if we go back to our liberal consensus episode, and this is a drift into economics, but Keynesians had been able to solve the crises of depression through you know Keynesian government spending and demand demand side policies. But what happened in the mid seventies was that those demand side tools weren't working because Keynesians had thought, oh, you know, we have a Phillips curve that says that if we if we sort of increase spending, this might lead to increased inflation, but it will decrease unemployment. So you always had that dynamic between inflation, between unemployment and inflation. But what the mid seventies brought on was that the Phillips curve dynamic disintegrated. So you had inflation, you had an unemployment, you had rising prices through, you know, the OPEC oil crisis, and you had companies leaving America. And then you have Howard Beale saying, you know, I don't know, we don't know what to do about the depression, um, the prices, we don't know what to do about the crime, the Russians. You know, this is a period where Americans in many sectors of American life, economists, political scientists, sociologists, they had simply did not have any solutions and, and many people became sort of inward looking and many people even turned to God. And I think that's, it's quite interesting that Howard Beale himself, he, you know, he starts to get God and God (laughs) starts to be the instrument that tells him, you know, how to get 
through these these things. And that is the context for, for, for this movie, especially with, with reference to Paddy Chayefsky. Uh, because Chayefsky was thinking about all of these issues. And and Chayefsky personally, I think, just to move on from the economics, was a Jew who cared deeply about um, Arab-Israel issues and the Arab-Israel conflicts that raged on in the beginning of the 70s affected him uh, very personally. And he took trips to Israel and very, was very conscious about that. So you get that in this film. You get sort of outrage about the depression, outrage about, you know, Arab money potentially coming into the United States, out, outrage about that sort of almost the fall of, you know, the American dream. And that's the context for how it view, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think looking at it through a modern lens, because, I mean, certainly as a British person, I kind of accept, you know, this idea of, you know, quote-unquote Arab money flowing through through the world. To me, that's just kind of a normal process of modern-day life, you know, whether, whether it be in investments in infrastructure or whether it be investments in, you know, soccer clubs. You know, it, it's, it's kind of, for me, it's kind of a standard thing, but I suppose this is when we're starting to see more of it, you know, 1976, the film came out, so you're looking at sort of early to mid-70s, you know, th this investment in, in foreign money, and as you say, when you have the Israel side of it as well, it does become, I wouldn't say it's scaremongering, but there's definitely an element of fear in the film. There, yeah, there is definitely an element of fear and uh, scare, scaremongering to a sense, because... This is the individual who had a personal fear of, of this this particular issue. So we, we do have to, I think, sort of understand that to, to an extent, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's something you... Again, it's a, a detail of the film, which you know I certainly didn't remember the specifics of it, but watching it watching it over the last month it's you know there are certainly very clear touchstones and maybe they are now more apparent to me as i've got older and become more political but it they in films they talk about they don't put anything in a on screen which isn't intentional you know so if you see a tell if you see a film playing in the back of uh on an old screen in a in a in, a, in the back of a shot of a film you know, that was, that was an intentional decision by a director to put something on that blank screen. You know, they could put anything on there, so they did that. This was an intentional decision to make it Arab money, which is flowing throughout the film. And I, I think maybe that's something for myself, which you, I probably didn't pick up on the first time I saw this, what, eight or nine years ago? But is a lot more apparent now that now that you're rewatching it and you have a, a wider scope of uh, both American history and of kind of politics and economics in, in general. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's a, it's a sort of broader fear of a, a loss of control. Obviously, like how it goes, oh, the CCA deal, um, he tells the people, you know, stop the CCA deal, and they send telegrams to the, to the, to the U.S. president. Well, and, and that, at that period, American uh, governments had stopped trying to block mergers, you know, they had switched thinking from um, how we could maybe regulate particular uh, industries so that there wouldn't be any monopolies. Now they turned to a different school of thought where they felt that, you know, if there wasn't a particular economic cost to a particular merger, they would they would sort of keep a sort of non-interventionist hand. And that's, and that's a sort of point of almost philosophical conflict between, in the, you know, in the sort of the universe of philosophical conflicts between what, uh, how Beale is saying and what Arthur Jensen is saying, because Arthur Jensen is saying that actually that power that Americans have to stop, you know, monopoly power or to stop outside interest is a sort of almost uh, silly, infantile idea about democracy. Arthur Jensen, when he brings Howard Beale in, into his office, says that there's no democracy there's no America, there's only a college of corporations. Yep. And this is a real philosophical difference. And, and it's also part of the wider way, I think, um, although I, I feel that Jensen makes um, certainly Howard Beale powerless to 
you know, resist his influence. It's also a way of Chayefsky trying to reveal, you know, the the outer workings of American capitalism to the audience of this movie. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting point you bring up about that. I think um, I think giving a a window into certain things of both the corporate side and the media side of of how things work. I, I don't know how. I mean, obviously, things like the oil crisis and the depression would have been on people's minds, but whether or not, you know, whether it's fear of our money or whether or not it's a viewpoint that you know nations are becoming less important and it's corporations which are the the glue that's holding society together. I I have done no research and wouldn't even know where to begin to kind of understand what sort of viewpoint that was maybe being held within American culture in the 1970s. Was that something? I mean, I imagine the growth of corporations was something people were aware of, but whether or not that was a, a standard kind of viewpoint for the man on the street to begin to understand that maybe we were moving further away from nations and more towards corporations? I mean, the man in the street certainly would have felt it to an extent, you know. I mean, if he had worked in a particular industry, that industry might have downsized in his area in order to benefit from cheaper labor in a different part of the country or mm. in a different country. Yep. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it, it, that, that's a cl- classic viewpoint of, you know. And, and, and that was the that was the sort of uh, economic sort of change that was happening in the 70s. But, you know, companies or television companies like UBS were giving you television that were able to, you know, <laughs> at least give you some <laughs> form of escape from that. And this is, this is why I see Chayefsky is almost shouting through the darkness in, in, a, in a way that is sort of ridiculous because Howard Beale is ridiculous, but there is a thread of a political philosophy in this movie, which is what, which is, you know, essentially what draws me to this film. Uh, Absolutely. I think, um, what, uh, if you don't mind, Toby, uh, what I'd like to cover now is one of, one of our favorite characters, which is Frank Hackett played by the, uh, the legendary actor, uh, Robert Duvall, who is, uh, I watched it again. I watched the film again today, and I just every time I watch the film, I just get knocked out by how good Duval is in this film, and how he is able to bring this kind of both raw power and this sort of fear of of living in his world of needing a corporation, which has uh, has led to maybe my favorite quote of the the film. Uh, I don't know, but I think you know which one I'm talking about, Toby. Oh, when, when he, yeah, yeah. When he, I'll, I'll let you. Uh... <laughs> the, the, there's, there's a fear at some, some point later on in the film where, uh, after, uh, Frank Hackett has watched, uh, uh, Beale go on television and try and uh, disrupt the 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 deal happening between CCA and the Arabs, that uh, Frank Hackett is very upset and he's. Uh, He's believing that his job is uh, going to uh, be in great jeopardy, and he says, "I'm a man without a corporation," which is just a fantastic line. And this idea that uh, that is the one part of his identity which he cannot possibly give up, and it it's true because he is a, a corporate man through and through throughout the film. And you know, he he's you're introduced to him to, at the start of the film as someone who's making these corporate decisions to you know make money and you know slash costs and uh, he he's the one who kind of sticks his neck on the line to fully endorse the the howard beale uh sort of madness hour which then becomes this this national hit from then on in you see him you know very much tied up with howard beale and his success but then later on the film we get a glimpse into whether or not it's a change in frank hackett or whether or not it's as a result of him having maybe his ties cut a little bit with the corporate side of it, he actually goes against the wishes of Arthur Jensen, who Arthur Jensen at this point has now converted Howard Beale to um, becoming basically his puppet and talking very much from the more corporate side of things, which has lost viewership. And uh, Arthur Jensen wants to keep him on air, even if he 
keeps losing them money, if he keeps losing them uh, viewers. Whereas Frank Hackett is now becoming more of the sort of TV executive who is going against the wishes of Arthur Jensen. And he, uh, Frank Hackett is, is part of the, the group which uh, plans to assassinate Howard Beale live on television in order to kickstart the rest of the show and get get the ratings back up and the uh, the show back in profit- profitability. Uh, it's an interesting... Uh, slight sort of turn at the end i don't know about your your thoughts on that uh toby yeah i mean it it, it certainly um was i think almost it was like television and reality or that the lines between them sort of was submerged so that you would get a point where someone could die because they didn't get good ratings so Howard Beale's death is, is based actually on the fact that UBS is no longer making money off of him. So the, the morality of television, as you know, sort of expressed through the character of, of Frank Hackett, is a sort of soulless thing. Absolutely. Yeah, which, yeah, which is, I don't know, it's... It's interesting that the final line of the film is actually said in voiceover, and it's, this was the story of Howard Beale, the first known instance of a man who was killed because he had lousy viewing, uh, lousy ratings, and it's it's true. I mean that that is essentially the kind of the crux of the matter. You know, he was killed because he was damaging the ratings. Now he was also killed because he was uncontrollable and they couldn't get him off air. But essentially, that is the send up of the film is that it's it's the poor ratings which have has caused this. There's also a just going back to Nixon. There's a lovely little line in the film where some of the executives are are talking about planning the assassination of Howard Beale, but obviously they have to try and separate themselves from a legal point of view from from actually committing a capital crime and. One of the executives says, "I hope you don't have any hidden tape machines in this office, Frank," which is obviously a nice little uh, playback to Watergate and uh, Nixon's tapes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really like uh, Max Schumacher said, you know, it's just, well, that all life is reduced to rubble and banality. When he was saying that to Diana after he had left her, you know, yep. Howard Beale's actual life yeah. is reduced to rubble and banality when it is expressed through the medium of television. The, so the expectation is that the audiences won't even care that he's going to die. <laughs> well, that, that's one of the interesting things. After the assassination happens, the, the way it's certainly filmed and presented to, to us as the viewer is no one kind of rushes trying to help Howard Beale. The audience doesn't scream. The only thing that really happens is that the, the camera crew move in for a close-up of Howard Beale's lifeless body after it's been shot. It, it's it just it's almost like a slick, expected move as part of a television production rather than a kind of out-of-nowhere assassination of, you know, compare it to, say, a JFK assassination where, you know, people are scrambling and madness is happening. <laughs> with, with poor Howard, it was, oh, okay, that's nice, let's move in for a close-up, will you? It's, it's all rather serene and poor Howard is lying there bloodied and lifeless and just as the the film actually begins with a split screen of four different TV new anchor uh, TV news anchors one of which I, I believe was um, uh, Walter Cronkite um, then at the end of the film the, the final shots is the is the four TV split into uh, different parts of news coverage of the assassination but slowly two of them kind of get replaced with uh, television news, uh, television adverts instead. And the final two are just sort of reliving the, the death of poor Howard. And uh, yeah, it, it's a, a nice kind of completion of the circle that we kind of started off by, you know, you've got maybe a Cronkite type figure to begin with, and then you end on bloodied corpse and... Uh, and advertisement. I think that, that kind of maybe sums up the... The yeah, from the from a sort of um, st- stately storied uh, news anchor to, I think, to images news, that yeah. 
to Fox News, exactly. <laughs> Images that are that give you sort of visceral visceral uh, pleasure or disgust based on how many advertising dollars that they can generate. It's Absolutely. yeah, it's a sad it's a sad process, but it's a process that we see sort of uh, develop, or at least there's a dialogue between these two worlds that comes across through, I think, the relationship of Diana Christensen and, and Max Schumacher. Absolutely. And just before we move on, I didn't actually realize that one of the characters in the Mao Zedong Hour is actually played by the daughter of Walter Cronkite, oh. which, which is fantastic. Yeah, Chayefsky did go to NBC to do a lot of his research. So uh, it was a nice touch, which I wasn't aware of until earlier today. So uh, the whole thing kind of ties together. Um, I don't know um, about where you want to move on to next, Toby. I suppose one one thing we could look at is the the legacy of the film and its kind of impact going forward and how how it maybe can be viewed today. I don't know if there's anything else more specific on the film itself you want to touch on before we move on. Have we done the relationship between Max and... We did kind of briefly touch on it, but you are right. We probably should speak a bit more about that since it is the kind of central core relationship of, of the film. As we said, Max is this uh, well-regarded industry uh, industry known figure who is kind of thought of as, as this grand figure who will probably kind of ride off into sunset in a few years, but right now is just kind of getting on with telling kind of more, more traditional news story. Whereas Dana Christensen is very much, I want to show, you know, bank robberies and I want to have a communist hour, you know, and I want to I want people to engage. I don't care if they hate us, just as long as they're watching. And it is their relationship is, I suppose, the how Chayefsky saw maybe the the move from Max's generation to Dana's generation, but also the film touches on the fact that Dana's generation grew up as a part of you know watching the stuff that was being produced by Max, and so Max's although he might be the kind of um, opposite of what Dan is, he is ultimately the, the creator of it. And in fact, this idea of... The idea at the start of the film about Howard killing himself live on air is actually come about from a conversation which Howard and Max are having in the bars they're drinking. Howard talks about how he's going to uh, kill himself and Max is talking about how he could get a 50 share easy with that. Um, yeah, certainly Max is being quite cynical, but Max has, I mean, being part of UBS news, has always been under pressure, you know, to generate uh, shares for the news channel, especially when th that news channel compares itself to other news channels. But what's happening in the movie is that actually corporate has taken over the, the news. The news used to be sort of the news was a um, in part of the corporate media company that would not necessarily have to make any money. Those news networks, right, especially um, NBC with Walter Cronkite, they were almost seen as prestige positions. Absolutely. They were giving you the the political and social news that was happening in the 50s and the 60s and there was the, the idea that you know it was a public good that was being given to the public here absolutely and, and, but, yet, and at the, sorry at the same time dana then brings up this hypocrisy to max and says you're not doing hard-hitting news you're spending exactly you're spending a minute and a half on this kind of national national news stuff and then the rest of the stuff you're doing you know violence or you're doing stories on puppies or you're you know you're doing things which is debasing news if you're going to get down in the gutter at least do it properly at least let me, <laughs> at least let me help you do it successfully mm -hmm. and it, it is an interesting counterpoint to the, this idea that oh well max is this you know cronkite type type figure and in reality the product he's putting out there kind of doesn't sound like it is it kind of sounds like it's already fallen to that side anyway it's just not gone to the full extent which Dan is able to kind of polish and turn it into. Yeah, I mean, there was a difference between the new, the normal news channels and, say, local news channels, which did have to use more sort of entertainment 
type stories and entertainment type techniques to get people uh, more interested in that. And Paddy Chayefsky did visit an action news station where a lot of this kind of stuff was happening. But as you say, I mean, Max Schumacher's um, news channel had already been dabbling in, you know, (laughs) some entertainment. And in the real world, in the 1970s, a lot of news channels were had more sophisticated, um, sophisticated researchers to work out what particular audiences were interested in, and could make news that was more sort of relevant in a you know in an informative way, but also in an entertainment way to particular different audiences. And what you have through Diana Diana Christensen is a person who doesn't care about information and doesn't yep. care about different political ideologies. She's with the Ecumenical Liberation Army. Yep. And she's with the, the communists. And she's talking to a lady who's a leader of a particular uh, communist group. And the, the, the and she talks she, to her she about the potential. control, doesn't she? She basically yeah, yeah. says, you know, I don't really care what you're saying, just as long exactly. as we're able to present it in a certain way and I'm able to get certain bits of action shown. She was very Because happy. Diana Christensen, especially early in the movie, she knows she knows what people are interested in, in now. They're not interested in, you know, the old type of news. They're interested in car crashes and murders and yeah. all of this sort of gore and uh, exploitation stuff. So what she what she's doing is she's bringing things that are happening in into reality, which almost seems like she 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 is actually helping to expose things that people are, are particularly interested in. But there are no, but it's not news, and there are no solutions that are given. Absolutely, yeah. All it is is pandering to people's you know most visceral worst fears or things that sort of um, give them a sense that their views are being validated. I think uh, I think that that's absolutely correct. I think it, it's interesting that the relationship between Diana and Max is always presented as this is always going to fail, and there's never a sense that this is some you know great love between two minds. This is someone who has you know. Uh, I had a schoolgirl crush on an older man back at back at college days, and who has still great respect for him. And then on the other side, you have Max, who is kind of getting older and is seen as this last chance to kind of have this affair and uh, engage with the world again. But they both know this isn't going to last. And in fact, th- there's a moment um, two thirds of the way through the film where Max is talking to his wife and telling him, uh, telling her about the affair and there's a meta moment where they actually talk about how his life has become a film and this storyline is the kind of classic second act story uh, moments uh, where he tells tells the wife but the audience know that ultimately they're gonna the wife and him are gonna end up back together because uh things aren't gonna naturally turn out with the uh with the woman he's having the affair with and obviously yeah it's it's not real life there's a sort of Mm -hmm. fatalism to to it because he feels like, oh, she's actually written scripts about this. You know, she Absolutely, listened to a yeah. soothsayer, mm-hmm. uh, and the soothsayer told her how the beats of this particular narrative are going to go. And she chose, you know, she <laughs> she basically had a remote control, and she flipped to this channel. But when she starts to feel like things are getting too real or think she can't control things, she'll flip to another channel. She literally says, you know, mm-hmm. I. I don't really. I'm not really enjoying this uh, yes. particular show anymore. I, I think one of the great things about the film is how well structured it is. That the way it introduces characters and the, the way it's able to maintain relationships. It's it feels like a classic screenplay in the sense that you never feel like you're rushing from one scene to the next, or you feel you're upended even as time can move quickly or slowly depending on when when the film needs it to. I think. It is so well structured and it brings the characters together so nicely. And even the payoff in relationships, you know, there there aren't a lot of... 
you know, there's no great, um, great scene where Max runs back to his wife and everything's happy again, or, or even a further rejection of by his wife of Max after the affair is over. You just kind of get a breakdown. The affair is over, and then things kind of move on, and suddenly, what the story is then ending the film on is is the assassination of of uh, of Beale, and I think it, I think maybe if it was written in a slightly different way where it tried to bring closure either in a positive or negative sense maybe that would overshadow what is ultimately the the end point of the film which is Howard's assassination and this cynical viewpoint that ultimately it was all about ratings and uh, that's that's what the, the crux of the matter was it wasn't anything deeper than that and I think it's it's interesting how how the film is able to use its structure in such a classic yet really kind of inventive way yeah and i think at the end it sort of it tells you that this is the natural extension of the way the industry is going absolutely which is a prophetic message for american television and american entertainment absolutely. in general and um we've only got a few minutes left so i was thinking maybe we could just now as you say, talk about where American television and where American media was going at that point. So that was 1976, the film came out, and obviously after that we saw, well, we saw Fox News in the 80s, and we saw, you know, 90s television. And firstly, I mean, we should point out that after this film came out, a lot of people, I mean, it had got some good reviews, obviously it garnered some Oscars, but a lot of people in the industry felt that this kind of message was ridiculous. <laughs> they didn't you know, they didn't see um you know this kind of exploitation uh happening mm-hmm. on television or this kind of or this kind of idea that political news or political messages were sort of falling away for exploitative you know you know exploitation film basically but what happened is that people have come to realize in the sort of immediate years afterwards and, and since then that Paddy really had a different vision because uh, at, once this film came out, the big thing that everyone took away from it was the catchphrase, you know, mm-hmm. mad as hell, mad as hell started popping in, in different places in the vernacular. And, you know, there's a gu- guy who killed his wife who said he was mad as hell. <laughs> 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 And uh, different politicians uh, took on the the mad as as hell moniker, but yeah. it wasn't until the the eighties where I think the with the end of the sort of the fair um, political coverage regulation in nineteen eighty seven, which said that people had to you know if you if you were doing a story which had a political message, you necessarily had to be balanced. That was gone in radio and in television. And you, then you had uh, the opportunity for an actual network or different types of radio stations that only catered to particular kinds of interests and only to their most, you know, sort of only to their most basic um, ideas that they supported or things that they disagreed with in order to create, you know, sort of captured political constituencies, you know, the things that. Paddy Chayefsky showed with his Vox Populi and, <laughs> you know, his Soothsayer and his Ecumenical Liberation Army documentary television show. There's all this, this, this stuff of the people, someone's wildest imaginations have come almost to light in, in the years since, which is, you know, again, shows you that the, how um, important this film is. Obviously, this is centered around the the news and that particular aspect of television. But it's become, as we kind of touched on earlier, it's become so much bigger in the sense that it. When we're viewing it now, it's very easy to take upon the you know the importance of the tube, as it's called. You know, is the internet of its day, and you know we're now having we're now having 
Senate hearings around people, you know, who are running Facebook and Google to, you know, explain their actions and explain about how intrusive they are into the lives of people. And one of the things Howard Beale talks about is being able to understand who's the power behind, you know, television and who are the people making uh, making decisions. And that's not specific to the content of of the Howard Beale speech, but it it's. It extends to that now, I, I think, certainly as I view the film, you know, this idea of of what what exactly is, is happening with the people that are making these decisions. You know, it's very easy to see a Howard Beale figure and he's on television so you can associate with him, but who who is the person, you know, controlling Howard Beale just as, as most corporations uh, don't have a, a specific figurehead which you can identify with. Unlike, say, maybe a Facebook, which you can, but um, I, th- I think that's one of the, the more interesting aspects of looking at it now is through the lens of the, the modern eye is seeing how that was able to touch on making sure we're in a position to question who are who are the people of these kind of faceless entities such as television, internet, etc., yeah, yeah, and it really, you know, it really was the the as Tom Wolfe said, it was the the me decade, the seventies, the the decade where people became more and more sort of inwardly concerned, and this kind of sort of um, critique of who runs a particular network and what a particular network's interests are sort of stood alone in many ways as as something that was quite different from the sort of popular culture in, in the 1970s the classic example you know in our lifetime is you know Rupert Murdoch and all the various news uh, agencies which he's owned and controlled over the years be it Fox News where there would be things like the Times and the Sun here in Britain it's it's something which you always have to be wary of about why is a particular news angle being covered in the way it is, you know? And although we didn't get it into too much specifics in 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 network, we obviously do touch upon this idea of making sure that corporations are not bad just because they are, you know, able to control, you know, aspects of people's lives. And we certainly, as Howard Beale sort of turns into a, a more uh, controlled type figure, we certainly see that uh, that viewpoint kind of pressed upon us. I think. Yeah, certainly. Like you said we've actually we're actually in a period where we're where we are thinking about the political economy of the news and entertainment because we are bringing these people to Senate hearings, although with you know um, ancient uh, senators um, sort of <laughs> critique, uh, critiquing them. But yeah, I mean things like a particular um, industry monopoly, you know, in the, in the 70s, that was a period where um, monopoly policy was always obviously disregarded because of people, um, sort of a new theory in the Chicago school. But I mean, today, people in public policy and, and people in the media are thinking much more about, you know, like, who runs Amazon and who runs Facebook and all of these other corporations and, and seeing that how much these corporations actually, you know, affect so many different things in our lives. But the, the 1970s, you know, unfortunately almost was a period where people weren't really concerned with that. I think the 60s had led to, I think, a rights revolution. And like we went, uh, we talked about on our New Left podcast, you know, it sort of shifted from economics because it was the go-go 60s to ideas about, you know, gay rights, women's liberation, African-American rights. And in in the 70s, there's a sort of (laughs) counter-revolution you get with people concerned with the rights of the church, the rights of, um, the rights of different communities not to get, you know, sort of uh, people from other communities bust into their community. So I think that it was it was definitely an angry period about rights and about self where, you know, the changing economic interests that, you know, did take place were kind of overlooked by a lot of people. And, and you can see this in 
the network uh, definitely uh, absolutely um well that's pretty much on the hour now toby uh, we're very close anyway um is okay. there a- anything else that you want to specifically say about the film other than the fact that we have been kind of reciting lines to each other over the last uh, week or so and just uh, laughing ourselves silly as we remember certain aspects. Of the yeah, I think a, a great uh, cynical moment in the film is, you know, when Diana Christensen, you know, in, her, in her, all her glory, you know, goes and has a meeting with the Ecumenical Liberation Army. And this is a this is a rights group, a group that's concerned with you know, changing almost the political and economic structures of the United States into a, you know, co- radical communist country. But both the the um, corporate executives and the members of the Ecumenical Liberation Army are unconcerned about actually their, their politics or, you know, their uh, impact on wider society. What they're both interested in in that particular meeting cynically on both their parts is you know who's getting the overhead clause and you know who's getting paid for you know different things it's it's a it's a incredibly it's an incredibly funny scene but it's also an incredibly uh you know powerful scene as well i think that the idea of having extreme political figures who are you know taking action and literally killing people and who are fighting for whatever beliefs and ideas that they have, uh, rightly or wrongly, what ultimately they care about once they're put in the position is <laughs> contract negotiations and turning to which which page they need to kind of iron out which clause. I think it's incredibly cynical that and very funny approach to this idea that, oh, only certain people would, you know, interest themselves with that that kind of that kind of world and what people genuinely care about is you know making actions and starting movements and changing the world in a positive light and actually what the film's kind of saying is yeah you put anyone in that situation and suddenly they become contract lawyers and it's <laughs> exactly yeah it, it, and, and it's very prophetic as well because it almost seems to almost predict the um almost like merry-go-round of different talking heads that will go on television and you know sell whatever rights or you know particular yes. concern that they have and yeah. then enrich themselves based on that yeah yeah the, the classic kind of viewpoint for hire kind of thing yeah. yeah viewpoint for hire exactly which is you know sort of a far far flung from you know the, the wonderful world of the the, the, the prestige journalist who seemed impeachable giving you the news for however long <laughs> well i mean i suppose in the sense that uh if what you're looking for in prestige news is kind of losing money then i i guess in the sense that we are as probably as prestigious they get in the news industry right now i'd say ah uh, yeah <laughs> the millions that impressions of america loses every year probably puts us up there with uh, the the UBS. Uh, you know, you're, you're supposed to be a covert capitalist. Uh, oh, oh, there's no nothing covert. I, I am a complete capitalist. I'm just not very good at it. <laughs> and yet you <laughs> you allowed the impressions of America to take up a storied and sort of classically, uh, you know, concerned public utility. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, everyone, everyone's got. To Where have is it. the Frank Hackett in you? <laughs> Everyone's got to have their public face, don't they? I oh. mean, I, 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 trust me. If I could sell advertisements during during the show, I would, or you know, replace one of us with a Fox News correspondent to make some money. Then, absolutely would. But we're still waiting on those offers to come in. So, uh, f- for right now, it's just you and me, Toby. Unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I hope you aren't auditioning the, you know, Ecumenical Liberation Army actors to replace me. Well, I mean, because I can, I can do that shtick too. I mean, dude. <laughs> I, I mean, I suppose I could ask ask you to try that. I mean, I, I don't. We don't have to concern ourselves with politics and economics and culture and stuff like that. You know, we can just go for the visceral punches of <laughs> black power, or you know, uh, and you know, Simon, I'm 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 here for it if you can provide the. The cash you know we'll, we'll we'll go through the 
overhead clauses. Okay, well, why, why, don't, I, uh, yeah. why, why don't you and I sit down together and discuss a contract, and then we'll decide what other politics we need to come out the back of that. But let's get the important stuff done. <laughs> yeah, the contract first, the politics yeah. afterwards. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that seems the only uh, fair thing to do in the, in the spirit of network, I think. Um, so I, I suppose that kind of uh, leads us to, to the end of the show. Um, network is a film which Toby and I... I should, guessing after an hour you can probably tell we both love um we will both keep watching in, in the years ahead i think um if you haven't seen the film then you probably had quite a lot of spoilers over the last hour um but uh if you have seen the film already then uh i would kind of ask you to rewatch it again soon because it, it's it's just fantastic and it really does hold up all, all these years later um so yeah from from myself simon and from uh toby uh we shall say goodbye and we'll uh see you for another episode in the near future um have a good night and uh thanks from uh, from toby and myself goodbye Bye.